Strive to consider how it is you are living out a holy life in the workplace, in the home, amongst family and friends. Wherever you go, you should be living a distinct life. Before you were saved, you could not. Now you desire to and are able. And it is a serious call that God places on your life to be holy as he is holy. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part two of By Grace Through Faith, a seven-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter two. In yesterday's first episode, Pastor Paul showed us how every person on earth, yes, both you and me, are united by one thing, being in rebellion against God by our sin. And that was cheerful, wasn't it? Well, now in part two, we learn how we can be united in another way, namely in being chosen and set apart to live a life that pleases God. Sounds simple, but is it? Is it up to me or is it up to God or both? Let's listen to Pastor Paul in By Grace Through Faith, part two. Do not, as a Christian, buy into this laissez-faire way of living. God's got me covered. Jesus has paid for my sin. I just don't need to worry about my obedience because it's all going to work out fine in the end. Jesus has paid for your sin, but he paid a great price and he wants you to look different from the world. He wants to make manifest his glory through your life. And the way God puts his glory on display in your life is primarily through your holy living. The word holiness means to set apart, to set apart, to be distinct. Don't boil down holiness to just a few areas of your life, but rather allow it to encompass all of your life. Strive to consider how it is you are living out a holy life in the workplace, in the home, amongst family and friends. Wherever you go, you should be living a distinct life life. Before you were saved, you could not. Now you desire to and are able. And it is a serious call that God places on your life to be holy as he is holy. The evidence that you were not of his was that you weren't holy, that you followed the course of this world. Second evidence that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, is by way of our authority, our alliances, and secondly, our authority. Paul goes on, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Back in Genesis 3, when Adam took of the fruit... Of course, you know, he did so at the bidding of the serpent. Satan had come into the garden. He'd come in in the form of a serpent, the great deceiver. He had twisted God's word. He had prompted 
Eve to do likewise. In that moment, Adam and Eve were more faithful image bearers of Satan than they were of God. They were established as representatives of God. They were there to represent his will as Satan diverted their thoughts and led them to think along another path. They were better representing him than they were God. They were image bearers, as it were, of Satan in that moment. And they took of the fruit and they trespassed and they bore the consequences. At that time, in some way, but perhaps we don't fully understand, this world was given over to Satan. God still reigns supreme. He is still sovereign over the entire universe. Satan does absolutely nothing to impugn or diminish God's sovereign reign over his creation. And yet, at the same time, in some way, according to God's wisdom, he gave to Satan dominion over this world. So that it is possible for Paul to write that he is the prince of the power of the air. We see this also in the book of Job. Satan comes to God. Note that Satan comes to God. Satan has to ask permission to do something. They are not on equal footing. We see in those early chapters of Job that God still reigns supreme and Satan cannot breathe his next breath without the permission of God. And yet, in some way that maybe we can't fully understand, God has given Satan a form of dominion right now over this world such that he is able to bring harm against Job. We see it again in the Gospels. Just a few weeks ago, we saw Satan tempt Jesus. He tested him. And if you remember, that third test was of the nature, Jesus, I will give to you all of these kingdoms. Somehow it is Satan's prerogative to give that as an offer, a genuine offer to Christ. This is mine to give, he says, if you would worship me. So we see that in some way, right now, Satan is the prince over this world, he is the prince of the power of the air. And in so much as anyone is out of Christ, not in Christ, he is doing Satan's bidding. Now, if you just ponder that for a minute and allow that just to sink in, that is a very difficult truth to embrace. If someone is not in Christ, they are doing Satan's bidding. Now, how can we say that? There are two things to keep in mind. Number one, the Bible clearly teaches there are two domains in which you might exist, and that's it. There are not three, there are not many. You're either in Christ or you're not. Those are the options. There are no more given. You are either in Christ, at which point now your heart and your life is wonderfully aligned with the will of God. Or you are not there, and you are now out of Christ. Your sins are not forgiven. You stand condemned by a wrathful God, rightly so, and you are not doing his will. 
That's one truth to keep in mind. The Bible is very clear about that. The second truth to remind yourselves of is that Satan appears often as an angel of light. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Satan comes as an angel of light. Rarely does he appear as evidently as he did in the garden that day. Even there, they were tricked by him. And yet we look at that chapter and think it is so obvious to us that he doesn't belong here. Rarely does he show up in that form. More often would he show up as an angel of light, looking and presenting himself as one who does good things and bids you to do good things. It is for that reason that you may look around at the world and see ostensibly many good people doing many good things. People who are giving charitably of their time and their energy and their resources and their whole lives for the benefit of others, standing all the while condemned by a holy God. People who are spending themselves for the benefit of others who seemingly are living out a very Christian life. That's exactly how Satan wants it. There is arguably nothing that pleases Satan more than to mislead these sons of disobedience such that they think they're on the right side of God by doing that which appears to be good. All the while they are doing his bidding because they are not in Christ. That is the defining factor and nothing else. You can do all the good in the world and you still incur the wrath of God. You can do all the good in the world and God is not pleased with one jot of it. He is not pleased with one second of your life because it is never, ever our efforts that please God. The only way to bring yourself into the pleasure of God is to find in Christ a sufficient Savior. It is only when Christ has paid for your sins and his righteousness has been credited to your life that now you have the pleasure of God. And hear this, that you have his pleasure fully. Then you do have his pleasure and you have it fully and you have it eternally. You have it every second of every day. You will never not have his pleasure thereafter because it is rooted in, grounded in the immovable, unshakable death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where God's pleasure is to be found in your life. In so much as that is not you, in so much as you have not found Christ to be a sufficient Savior, you do not have the pleasure of God, and everything you do is at the bidding of Satan. I would encourage you to think of the world in this way. We can get lost so easily in a society that treats Christians well, a society that doesn't persecute the church, at least not today, we can get lost amongst many, many cordial friendships with unbelievers. It's not wrong to have those relationships. I'd encourage you to have many relationships with unbelievers in your life. But we can get lost concerning the truth of their eternal destiny because they appear to be so good. They appear to be doing so much that isn't wrong 
so much that we maybe wouldn't categorize as sin, you have to remind yourself daily of the truth of Ephesians 2, that they are sons of disobedience, doing the bidding of the prince of the power of the air, and that is one evidence that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. The third and final evidence that Paul gives concerns our ambitions, our alliances, our authority, and thirdly, our ambitions. Paul says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We had ambitions before Christ saved us that were not of him. Before Christ got a hold of our life, we carried out the desires of our body and our mind. We were held captive to our ambitions. There are at least two things to say about this third evidence. One is that it speaks of a lack of self-control. One of the characteristics of an unbeliever is a lack of self-control. There is no fruit of the Spirit in their lives, at least not genuine fruit. It is not fruit that has been wrought by the Holy Spirit. There is no Holy Spirit wrought love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. There is an absence of those things, and in that way, you understand the self-consuming, self-imploding nature of sin. As the unbeliever has no self-control and yet has strong desires for that which does not honor the Lord, they keep chasing their sin, and it keeps consuming them all the more. Sin consumes itself and it consumes the sinner. And this is precisely how lives are ruined by what began as looking to be some small offense. Something which on the outside did not look to be all that dangerous ends up ruining a person's life because of the self-consuming nature of sin. The other thing to note about this third evidence is that the desires themselves were not God-honoring. Not only does it speak of a lack of self-control, but it testifies to the fact that the desires, the lusts, the passions, the ambitions of the flesh had no inclination towards God, had absolutely nothing to do with God's will. It is purely an expression of God's common grace if an unbeliever does something that in some way tangentially lines up with that which might happen to honor God. The charity worker is doing something which on the outside looks like that might please God. God is pleased when his children do such work. And here we are with an unbeliever doing such work. How? Simply by God's grace, not because their will is aligned with the Lord's. Their desires, if we were able to dig down deep enough, would found to be selfish, hate-filled, not desiring to honor the Lord, but only ever centered on self. And so you see again, the wonder of the gospel is that which utterly transforms the heart. 
It puts Christ at the center of the person. Now the individual has Christ at the center of all that they do, all that they think, all that they will, all that they desire. There is a sense in which it may not even necessarily change all that much that you do in your day-to-day life. As an unbeliever, you played golf. As a believer, you played golf. I don't know why, but that was your choice. I'm just teasing. But you see, as an unbeliever, that round of golf was offensive to God. Because it was not born out of any desire to glorify Christ. And yet now, within the freedom of the gospel, we can enjoy so many good things that God gives us. With Christ at the center, we can now enjoy the good things that he gives us. And now that activity, as simple as it is, is rendered holy unto the Lord and somehow honoring to him no longer an offense because of the gospel. And more than that, your very desires do change such that you strive to do that which honors the Lord and advances the gospel. Beyond a consideration of what our leisure activities might or might not be, we now have genuine desires for the advancement of the glory of Christ. We now have a genuine and real desire to lay down our lives, to pick up our cross, ready to die, if it would bring Christ more glory. He utterly transforms those whom he saves. And that transformation is a testimony to the work of the gospel. Or to put it another way, the absence of that kind of desire prior to your reception of the gospel was a testimony that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that is the prerequisite to salvation. That's exactly where you need to be in order to receive the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus. Until you have come to terms with your sin in the way that Paul speaks of it, then you can't receive Jesus as a savior. If your view of your sin is not as absolute and all-encompassing as the one that Paul gives here, then you have received a different Jesus. If you believe that your sin wasn't a great thing, I wasn't proud of it, but there was much that I did that did please God and was aligned with his will. I did have his favor in some areas of my life. You have not arrived at the same view of sin as the Bible. And so as you embrace Jesus, you are invariably embracing a different Christ. You are saying that I find him to be sufficient in some areas and in other areas I don't actually need him. When you understand your sin in these terms, then you have the prerequisite to salvation. And this is exactly where the Jews and the Gentiles in Paul's day had understood they themselves had come from. They understood the all-encompassing nature of the cross in their lives. And Paul lays it out in order to say, if that is true of you, if you understand your sin in that way and by inference your salvation in that way, how then, when you gather together in worship, could you possibly have anything but love for those around you? 
That's the argument of this chapter, zooming out now as we understand where Paul is headed. Toward an argument for unity amongst the Jew and the Gentile. The logic that he is building is simply this. If you understand just how depraved you were in your sin, neither willing nor able as a sinner who was dead, if you understand yourself as that prior to your reception of the gospel, without any exceptions, Jew and Gentile alike, and you understand the common salvation that you have received, Not a different gospel depending on who you are. All have received the same salvation. Then, when you gather together, your heart should be overflowing with love towards one another. It is exactly the same lesson to which we are exhorted to this evening. As you look around, there are people in this room who have a different story to you. Their walk of life looked very different to yours. I praise God for the diversity of this congregation. How can you have anything but a deep-seated brotherly affection for one another because of who you were before Christ saved you and because of the common salvation that we all have received? May it be true of us that our love abounds for one another in our understanding of Christ. Let's pray to close. Our Father, we love you and we love your gospel. We praise you this evening for the saving work of Jesus Christ in our lives. As we have thought upon the reality of our sin, we are amazed at our salvation. We were truly dead, spiritually dead, lifeless in our trespasses and sins, and indeed we walked in them. We followed the course of this world. We did the bidding of the prince of the power of the air, and we followed the inclinations of our minds and our hearts in our flesh. Great was our sin. It is true of every single one of us, and you sent Christ to save us. Our salvation is the same. Our salvation is common. Every man, woman, and child that is found in Christ has received the same salvation, and that alone should bid us toward unity. May it be true of us that as we reflect upon the glory of the gospel, we love one another forgive one another, embrace one another, lay down our lives for the good of one another. And may you be greatly glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Don't we all get dissatisfied with our lives at some time, thinking something is missing? And that's what sin does to us. It takes something away. And we know we need something restored. If you feel like that, it's God's way of working on you to live a life set apart to live for Him instead of in rebellion against Him. We don't like to think we're rebels, but that's the first sign of realizing we need to be reconciled to Him, isn't it? And just like in any relationship, you have to be ready to reach out for that reconciliation. Are you ready? 
If you'd like to learn more about turning your life in the right direction and living a life that pleases God, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcast, and there you'll find our free audio archive with an abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Sunday's almost here, and if you're in the area and don't have a home church, come worship with us, 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Join us on Monday for part three in our series, By Grace Through Faith. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.